Before we get into the show, let me quickly tell you about a new podcast I've discovered. Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. What's so exciting for me is that this show is hosted by husband and wife team, Al and Leanne Elliott, who are fellow Manx. Yeah, they are fellow Mancunians. We are from the same city. And Leanne and I realized we actually at one point lived in the exact same area. What a small world. So in their podcast, Al and Leanne are dispelling myths, imparting wisdom, and answering all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. Leanne's a business psychologist, and Al has led and owned multiple businesses over the past 20 years. Together, they blend theory and practice to help business owners and leaders simplify consumer psychology. Now, as a copywriter who loves figuring out what makes people tick and what makes them buy, I really enjoyed their episode with Phil Agnew. It's called What Makes Your Team Say Yes? Exploring the Psychology of Influence. Go check it out. Listen to Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I've recently bought an online course created by someone I really admire. The thing is, I don't even think I needed the course. Not really. But I'd spent three or four years watching this course creator launch this digital product And this was the year I got tired of the FOMO. The fear of missing out. The fear that this course had one valuable piece of information that could change my entire business. I didn't spend my hard-earned money on this course because I thought I needed it. I spent my hard-earned money on this course because I was afraid of not having it the course? It's, it's interesting. Have I learned anything I don't already know? Not yet. For me, the most interesting part of all of this was the realization that persuasive marketing tactics actually work on me, an email copywriter. Urgency, scarcity, FOMO, the countdown timer, social proof, early bird bonuses, mid-launch bonuses, the intense and overwhelming email schedule. I know these persuasive techniques and tools because I've studied them as an email copywriter. I use some of them for my own launches and for my clients' launches too. And yet, they still worked on me. They convinced me to buy a course I didn't really need, even though I was able to recognize and identify every single one of those techniques in action. Now, I can only imagine how influential and powerful these persuasive principles and techniques must be on people who don't know them and who can't recognize them. We all know there are serious conversations happening inside the online business world about the coaching industry, how we launch, about the boss babes and the bro marketers. We have podcasts like Duped, The Dark Side of Online Business by Michelle Mazur and Maggie Patterson. A great podcast that explores topics like predatory pricing practices, celebrity entrepreneurship, the use of triggering and traumatic stories to sell, and the scam of sales psychology. Then there's Tarzan K. Tarzan K teaches email marketing skills to online businesses, digital course creators, and freelance service providers. 
I know her because she came up in her career writing copy for people like Amy Porterfield. She's known for her brilliant story-filled newsletters and the fact that she spent the past three years slowly dismantling her seven-figure boss babe empire and unlearning the systems of influence and indoctrination that were taught to her as a new business owner. Tarzan grew up in a cult and is in recovery from cults and coercive control. She knows more than most how the use of the principles of persuasion can cause harm, especially in the coaching industry. She's now dedicated her work to undoing that harm and teaching sales strategies that leave space for conversation and critical thinking. The biggest mistake that I made was trusting Jeff Walker to teach me how to build an online business. I trusted him to teach me how to use persuasion to sell things. And what he actually taught me was how to weaponize persuasion to make people buy things that were not in their best interest. I can't look away from all of the people who have been harmed. Tarzan Kay is an expert email marketer and storyteller. And she's here to talk about how trusting Jeff Walker's method of launching meant she created a seven-figure empire she felt was contributing to the dark side of online business. Until she decided to slowly dismantle it, start over and do better. If there's one thing that people take away from my work, like, I just want them to be brave. And sometimes what that looks like is engaging in conversations like this that are, like, complicated and highly nuanced. Welcome to Mistakes That Made Me. The podcast that asks extraordinary business owners to share their biggest business mistake so you know what not to do on your road to success. My name's Iman Ismail and I'm an email strategist and copywriter for online business owners and e-commerce brands. I'm a podcast lover, a pizza binger, a proud mama of two, and I have this radical idea that if maybe us business owners were a little less guarded and a lot more open about the mistakes we've made, we could help each other grow a business that brings us more joy and less regret. Hi, Tarzan. Thank you so much for joining me. Iman, I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to chat to you because you are one of the most open and honest people I know and actually this was a question I was going to ask later on in the interview but I'm just going to go ahead and ask it now I think one of the things that makes you so unique is how honest and open you are and the fact that you're not afraid to share exactly what's going on with you as you're living it and I guess I wonder when you made the decision how you made the decision if it was at all like a conscious decision to be so open about you, your life, your business, your family. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been an evolution. And I also, I have so many thoughts on this, but I'm going to start with where I am now and then I'll walk it back. Like, I actually just realized recently, like I've built this reputation for like bringing people on the journey and sharing everything that's going on. And I had a call with a it was like a pre-interview for a podcast and I was <clears throat> getting ready to reveal something that is like potentially pretty explosive. 
And I was like, you know, I'm worried about my like nervous system. Like there's going to be some pushback. Like this is a big deal. I don't know if I want to talk about this. And this guy, bless him, said to me, you know, like you're not under any obligation to like share everything. You don't have to like air all of your dirty laundry and not everything in your life has to be like another turning of the wheel. And that was really valuable to me because even though the thing that I was wanting to talk about was really relevant to business, it still was just something personal. And I was like, maybe I could just keep this for myself and work this out. So it's taken me, you know, seven years to get to that place where I'm negotiating. What do I share? What do I not share? What's useful to share? What's what is like salacious? And what's just fun? Like, so I'm negotiating that. But I did have some experiences really early on that were really valuable when I was writing Amy Porterfield's newsletters. And or rather, they weren't really newsletters. They were her weekly email about her podcast. And I remember one of our earliest conversations, her saying to me how she kind of had recognized this thing within herself that she was like only being vulnerable from the other side of it. Like, oh, I went through all of these hard things and now I'm here and isn't this great. And so that was something that we worked on a lot in her emails, which was like to to share things like to just let people in a little bit more mm-hmm. and, you know, share some things that were hard even when she hadn't figured it out yet. And so that was my first introduction to that conversation. And it was really valuable. And through writing her newsletters, which I only did for like maybe eight months or something, people, I, I just, you know, got a chance to experiment with that. And that was really valuable and impacted my work a lot in terms of what I share and don't share. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you mention Amy Porterfield because I don't listen to her podcast a lot. But one of the episodes I listened to was the one where she was talking about the fact that, well, I guess her strategy around deciding what to share and how, I mean, I guess this would have been a long time ago now, a couple of years ago, and how she does only share kind of what was going on once she's out on the other side so it's more of a like look this is what happened this is what I learned now I'm on the other side and this is what I'm going to share with you so I am actually familiar with with that philosophy coming from Amy Porterfield I I mean you share so much um and I remember in one email specifically no I think it might have been on your Substack. so if you don't listen if you don't subscribe to Tarzan's emails go subscribe now (laughs) because um, I mean, Tarzan is just an amazing storyteller and your email, her emails are full of stories, but you also have a Substack newsletter as well. So I think it was there where you started sharing one story and then you stopped yourself and you said, this kind of infringes upon someone else's story and life. So I'm going to stop here and I'm not going to mm-hmm. continue to share, share, right? So what kind of that's a boundary you've created for yourself. What other kind of boundaries have you mm-hmm. created around what you what you do and don't share? Yeah, well, so that's a problem that everyone who writes memoir has to contend with. Like, which part of this story is mine? Mm-hmm. How do I share this without hurting people or exposing them? So I'm navigating that. And I specifically started the Substack newsletter because it felt like there was so much 
that was not related to business that I really wanted to share, like things about like relationships, sex, cult recovery. Like there is some cult recovery stuff that's relevant to business, but a lot of it, I just wanted there to be a more clear boundary about where I could just really dig deep into a story and where versus my newsletter, where I always feel obliged to like bring it around to business, have a bit of a lesson, you know, so separating those two out, like now I have two email newsletters, which, you know, when people, when my students in my program email stars come and say like they have two newsletters, I'm like, that's such a bad idea. Please don't do two newsletters. And even for me, actually, I was publishing one email newsletter a week, like on my business list and also Substack. And I found that to be just way too much. Like it was beautiful. I produced a lot of really good writing. However, my Substack writing is not only longer, long form, you know, it's usually like, you know, 2000 words, 1000 to 2000 words. Whereas my emails average like maybe 500 words, 750 at most. So even just having that, like the length of that piece, it just meant that it took up all my time. So I decided to move to once a month, um, negotiating like how I'm writing and when I'm writing and what my commitments are. Like that's really important to me. And even having boundaries around like when I work on my email, like I basically always work, I write my emails on Tuesday and they go out the following Tuesday when I'm writing for a promotion, like when I, it now in the current iteration of my business, I'm not doing very highly produced live launches, but in the past, like all of that content always got written like about a month beforehand. So it could be uploaded. I would leave, like if I'm writing a launch sequence, I would leave a bit of space mm -hmm. You know, like on Wednesday, there's just an open space here to address whatever objections are coming up. Um, but for the most part, I prepare all of the emails and my team would load them, schedule them, you know, edit them, whatever, ahead of time so that we could really like focus on being present for the promotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are some of my boundaries around email and writing. Tazam, one of the most amazing things about you and just watching you do business is how quickly your business grew. So you started copywriting full-time in 2016. And I mean, you very quickly grew to six figures, then seven figures, and we've watched you hit, you know, a million and more. And a couple of months ago, you shared that you had actually let your entire team go. And that having grown your business to seven figures, you are now scaling back. So we're going to go into that part in a second. But tell me about letting go of your team. How did you reach that decision and what did that look like? Well, that was not an easy decision. And I definitely, much like choosing to get a divorce, like I tried a million different things to make my marriage work before I got to the point where I was like, this is not working. And in my business, like, actually, it was working. You know, we were doing okay. We weren't like selling online courses, like definitely the market's tough right now. So it wasn't as gravy as like 2020, but it was working. We were okay. But however, it was not working for me personally as the leader. And I think in the last couple of years, like I've really, 
you know, in my first years in business, like I think it was year three and I was charging $10,000 to be in my mastermind, which in retrospect, you know, I really didn't have the capacity to lead. And it was, or, you know, the ability, the experience, like there were a lot of things. And actually it was running that program that made me realize that I had a lot to learn about leadership. Like I didn't know anything about leadership and nobody was really talking about leadership in any of the programs that I was taking. So, you know, that was like 2019. And I have since then learned a lot about leadership and taken a lot of responsibility as a leader in terms of like what I need to bring to conversations, how to support people, how to have hard conversations and how to lead a team, like all of those things. And actually being a leader like requires a lot of presence. It requires a lot of energy, capacity. And in the last year, I just haven't had that capacity. Like I'm going through a divorce, like doing a lot of recovery recovery work around my like childhood trauma. I was raised in a cult and the impact of that is like affects all areas of my life. So I've been doing some like really difficult work this last year and also trying to show up for my team and be in leadership for my team and my students and all those things. And I got to a point like toward the end of the summer where I just like we were looking at what we were going to offer next. And I just realized like I don't have capacity to lead this next group of students. Like I just don't have it. The volume of students, even just like who I need to be in a program like the one we were considering, I knew I just didn't have it. But I also knew that in order to make revenue that we needed to keep everything running, like I had to do something. And what I realized was that I actually just needed to step back and take care of myself before like putting some big thing on the market. And it was a really hard decision up until the moment when I made the decision. I really didn't consider it as a possibility. I just was like, I'm here to, you know, provide for the team and to keep this thing going no matter what. And then it just got to a point where like personally, the cost was too much. And I I realized like, if I continue to do it in this way, like there's actually not going to be anything left for me, like in terms of like, whether it's money or or um, like energy, like all of those things, I just was like continuously putting myself last in order to like hold up the sky of my business. Like also, you know, my husband was a stay at home dad. So I'm paying for all of my expenses, all of his expenses and trying to figure out how to be a single parent, like all of these things. It was just like so many things at once. I just... It just sort of came down on me in a moment when I realized, like, I have to put some things down. And so I let go of my whole team in a day. And it was really shocking for them and shocking for me, but, you know, harder for them because they, you know, lost their jobs and totally didn't see it coming at all. So, you know, even that is something that I've had to, like, just have to hold. Like, I, I, held my team really close and they'd get put a lot of trust in me and I know 
for some of them, like it felt like that trust was broken and that was hard, but I, I, I don't regret it. Like, I know that was the right thing to do. It just is complicated and messy for everyone involved. What I'm hearing that is, I mean, you had, you have so much going on and I feel like people, other business owners can relate to that in terms of how do you keep your business running? How do you keep things going? when you just feel like you you can't anymore you don't have the space you don't have the capacity emotionally mentally all those things and I think the difference is I think the courage that it takes to to pull the plug on something that just isn't working as opposed to continuing to just keep going keep going because you think that's what you have to do and yeah Yeah, I can't imagine I did that too yeah I did that too like I kept going kept going kept going kept going And then one day I just couldn't go anymore. And that was the end. So, you know, that's a hard, it's a hard call to make. Like, when is the end? When do I put this thing down? When do I keep going? And I think making that decision really like is different for everyone. I listened to you talking on a podcast recently where you said someone had sent you an email criticizing your decision to write an email about letting your team go and sharing that you had let your team go and the criticism was that you were exploiting that situation for content basically to create content I personally thought that criticism was a little harsh but everyone's well, very harsh everyone's entitled to their opinion I guess and one thing I do want to say is I think you take uh, criticism and feedback so amazingly well that's something I'm working on because I am still in that mode where I jump to being defensive how have you found a way to be able to just to take on that feedback and criticism because from what I've seen and what I've heard it feels like you do take on a lot you share the criticism that comes your way you share that mm. as a matter of fact it was criticism that initially led you to kind of change your entire business mm-hmm. initially or I guess your outlook on, on life initially mm-hmm. right so I think someone had someone had come to one of your events and told you that it just was not diverse enough and that kind of led you on another journey but my point is you're so good at taking criticism. How do you do it? Okay, well, this is a superpower and it's also um <laughs> it's also my childhood trauma. So, mm-hmm. I was like I was raised in the Christian fundamentalist religion and basically like it was impossible to be to not be like a bad sinner who was like doing things wrong all the time. So I have like, I am constantly like my head is on a swivel to make sure like, am I okay? Am I doing something wrong? Is anybody mad at me? And that I actually have to learn how to manage. So, you know, for some people, for a lot of people, like when they get criticism, their default mode is like defensive, like not my problem. However, I have the opposite issue which is whenever I'm criticized for anything in any area of life, I assume not only that I am the problem, but also that like I may die if I don't resolve this problem. Like, it feels life threatening. Um, cause like as a child, it was, it was like I was like going to burn in hell forever if I didn't figure this out. So I'm able to take criticism and hear it and. I also, so I've had to learn sort of the other side of it. Like, okay, how do I decide if I'm really the problem or not? Rather than like, how do I decide if this person is the problem? 
And in my email, like early on, before I had like a really good grid around this, uh, in my earlier days, I had a rule that was like, if more than one person replies to an email and says, hey, this thing is a problem or I disagree with this, then I know that I have to take a closer look. So that was an early rule that helped me when I didn't know. And now another really important rule that I have is when I get critical feedback to just sit with it. Because another thing like about my childhood trauma is like when I'm told I'm bad, I also immediately go into action. Like I'm in like, you know, like fight, flight, freeze or fawn. There's actually a lot of people don't know that there's a fourth, the fourth F, fawn. And that's what I do, which is like, we all know fight, flight or freeze in terms of the, the bear. And fawning is like, you love the bear. You make the bear feel so wonderful about themselves that the bear will not hurt you. So I know that that's what I do when I get some feedback that's hard. I want to immediately tell this person, like, thank you so much. I appreciate this. You're so wonderful. I'm so bad. Here's what I will do going forward. So in order to protect myself and those people offering me often helpful feedback, I just give it three days. Like, okay, there's that. And even in the span of three days, there's usually... I might have a conversation with my best friend about it, who we talk about a lot of business stuff, oh, all things. So I might have a conversation with my bestie or someone in the industry. I might like even just sleeping on it often will help a lot. And getting like regulating myself like now, you know, I'm not as easily dysregulated by a single email, but I used to be. And so in any situation when I'm deciding like, what am I going to do? with this criticism, the first step is like giving myself space to regulate my nervous system and then make a decision from like a calm place. Because when I'm in that reactive, like this bear is going to eat me, like I can't make a decision about how to address this criticism. So just to summarize, does more than one person share this opinion? And then second, giving it a couple of days before replying or deciding to do something about it I really like that the second one as well is a is a rule that my mom has always taught me my mom has always said give yourself 24 hours before responding to anything that kind of you know upsets you or like you said regulates you anything potentially upsetting just give it 24 hours let it sink in you know give yourself time to reflect that's always really helped me and I feel like the times that I haven't gone that the times that I haven't done that and that I've gone against that I've always regretted. So that's a really good piece of advice. I am excited to move on to the meat of this episode and to talk about what I invited you here for. Are you ready? I'm nervous and I'm ready. Yes. Yeah, that's the most common answer I get. I am nervous. Okay. Tarzan, what is the mistake that made you? So the biggest mistake that I made was trusting Jeff Walker to teach me how to build an online business. Okay. Take me back to the beginning. What did your business look like before you decided to trust Jeff Walker to teach you about how to do launches? And why 
what was the mistake in that? Okay, so I started my business in 2016. And the first thing that I did was I bought B-School. And after I bought B-School, I was like, wow, this is a great way to get clients. And then right away, I bought Amy Porterfield's Courses That Convert. And then I was just right away, like, on the train. Like, I'm learning about online courses, how to launch, how to get... I knew right away that I wanted to focus on emails and sales pages. So I just started taking whatever programs came my way where I could learn about how to do that better. I wasn't even thinking about doing it for myself. I also saw it as an opportunity to get clients. So I just kept going down that road. Now, what I didn't know at the time is that in online business, like if you've taken a program from Marie Forleo, Amy Porterfield, Stu McLaren, James Wedmore, like basically the lineage of that like can all be traced back to Jeff Walker. I never have purchased a Jeff Walker program. However, I've been to two of his live events because as I was coming up in the online course world, my best friend was trying to build her thing too. And she had chosen to learn from Jeff Walker. And she liked his story. And also he was like, I think because he was like older and closer to her age. And she had like this whole story about how he was like, well, he has his whole story. And, you know, she felt like if Jeff could do it, I could do it. So she chose to go down the Jeff Walker path. And I chose to go down the path of like all the other people who also learned from Jeff Walker. And let me just pause for a second, because I also want to say any names that I have just named, like I'm not naming them as bad people, good people, even Jeff Walker, like we're all in this mess. This is a mess. We are all in this. I'm participating in it. Like, so we're all, we're all in it. We're all using some strategies and not others, like trying to figure it out. However, Jeff Walker is kind of like the granddaddy of launching. Like he taught, like, even like if you buy from Tony Robbins, like Tony Robbins learned it from Jeff Walker. Like a lot of people that are anybody that's using the three part video series, like that all goes back to Jeff Walker. So, okay. So it's my first year in business and my bestie buys this program and she says, I'm going to this Jeff Walker event in Phoenix. Do you want to come? Like I get to bring a friend. So I'm like, yes, of course. I definitely want to come. So I go to this event in Phoenix. And so in, in my little bit of an aside here, in my cult recovery work, something that I've learned about, there's like sort of a, an offshoot of cult recovery about large group awareness training. And I now can identify that that's what that was, but I didn't know at the time. I was just going to a business event where other business owners were going to like learn about business. And Jeff Walker is an absolute, like he is masterful. He is so good at running these trainings. It's a three-day event. And, you know, we've all like, probably a lot of your listeners have been to these types of events. It's like, usually you get, it's free or low cost because they're selling something that's high cost, that's like high ticket, like 10,000 or more. And it's basically like an indoctrination event. And Jeff Walker is really, really good at it. And 
Uh, so I go and I'm really excited. I'm meeting all these people. And <clears throat> Jeff Walker tells this like beautiful metaphor from the stage. And he has this metaphor, like he's from Colorado or lives in Colorado. And he's like a real outdoorsy guy. And he talks about this canyon trip, like down the Colorado River. And a lot of people will do this. It's like, it's a really special experience. Like you have to apply and the permits are given by lottery. And when you get a permit, you have to like drop everything and go through this canyon trip. And it's like three weeks or something. You're totally immersed. And then at the end, the reason he told the story is because he made this metaphor about what he called Rimworld. And when you're in the canyon, like there's the canyon and then there's Rimworld. And Rimworld, like at the end of your trip, you have to go back to Rimworld. And it's really like it can be a culture shock because all of a sudden people are like looking at their phones, going to their jobs, like caring about different things that you were totally disconnected from for three weeks. So he tells this metaphor and the purpose, like he starts telling this on day one and he tells the comes back to this metaphor every day for three days. And what he's preparing you for is that when you go home, like, you know, this LGAT, this large group awareness training, like that is the canyon experience. And when you go back home to Rimworld, you are going to be amongst all of these people that do not understand what your life in the canyon was like. And they're going to think you're weird. They're not going to agree with what you're doing and all of these things. And at the time, I thought, like, that's a really beautiful metaphor. Like, yes, like, there are a lot of people in my life who don't understand what my business is. They don't understand, like, why I would spend $10,000 on a coach or, like, what is what even is this business you're in? Like, so that really resonated with me. But what I actually know because of my work in cult recovery is, like, that is strategically separating people from their communities and sowing mistrust among the most important people in their lives. And the whole purpose of that is because at that event, they're selling a $10,000 program. And a lot of people like, you know, that it's that culture of like the first five people to the back of the room get $500 off. And then like everybody runs to the back. Like it's like designed to shut down critical thinking and just like go buy the thing. Most people that join those programs are not like, that's not what their business needs. You know, people in industry language, we would say they're not ready. However, I would, I would argue that, you know, that readiness is just basically a sales tactic. It's really not what they need. A lot of them don't even have businesses yet. So then of course, like when they go home to their spouses, their spouse is like, with the shit, like you just spent $10,000. Like we don't have $10,000. However, like, you know, they're held in this whole, I, like this Canyon community. And then your spouse is like, you know, some rim world person that doesn't even understand you or know what you're doing. I want to be clear. Like, I don't think that Jeff Walker is a cult leader. I don't think he's like studying like David Koresh and like figuring out like how to like, you know, incorporate these culty things into his business. However, the model is highly 
highly coercive. And at the time, like I did not understand coercive control in in copywriting. Well, you know this, Mon. As a copywriter, like you know, the first thing you learn is Cialdini's principles of persuasion. Mm-hmm. So I learned the principles of persuasion, and what I didn't know because I never actually read the book until many years later is that Cialdini. I didn't learn this until I took a um, wonderful program from Kelly Deals. The program used to be called Feminist Copywriting. Now it's called Copywriting for Culture Makers. And she had this program. It was like a program inside the program about persuasion. And she's she says, like, you know, Cialdini didn't write that book for, like, salespeople. He wrote it for consumers so that consumers would know when they were being manipulated. And then, but all these salespeople came in and like made Cialdini's book influence like the the Bible of copywriting. And Cialdini himself actually called those tools weapons of influence. And so like to summarize like why I define this as a mistake that made me is like, I thought like the reason why I felt compelled to name Jeff Walker specifically is because like I trusted him to teach me how to use persuasion to sell things. And what he actually taught me was how to weaponize persuasion to make people buy things that were not in their best interest. And like, it's taken me seven years to be able to actually articulate that. And a lot of self-examination, a lot of looking at the industry, a lot of like walking back the things that I used to do and don't do anymore. And again, like I don't, you know, it's working for Jeff. Like he's not going to do it differently because his model works for him. It makes him money. Like, there's no reason for him to question what he's doing. But for me, like, I I can't look away from all of the people who have been harmed in this industry. Like, all of the people who bought program after program that they will say in their own language, I wasn't ready for it. But really, like, that just was not something they needed. But someone really crafty with with their persuasive bonuses and countdown timers and all those things, like convince them that they needed it. And now there's like this whole just like graveyard of like broken businesses and people feeling like, like so many people who've been like through the grinder of online business have so much like intense guilt because we're taught to be like the person responsible, like the whole message is like, if I can do it, you can do it too. Like it's intensely individualist. So if people, if it didn't work, people assume like, it's my fault. I didn't do it properly. I didn't buy the right program. I did webinars. I should have done a three-part video series or whatever. Like all of these business owners that have just been bled dry of all of their money and don't have a lot to show for it. And I like I just could not look away from that. I could not. And um that once I started looking at that, like it really changed 
changed the way that I promote. Like it changed everything. It, it, it changed my whole life, like way beyond business. How did these methodologies show up in your business when you were using them and when you, you know, when you had initially been taught them? Well, for starters, like I did my own large group awareness training. Like I did everything. Well, not everything that Jeff Walker did, but like, you know, I followed the basic formula because like, you know, if you've been to one of those events, you've been to them all. They all look the same. Like it's the same format. You know, there's usually like, you know, the 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 leader will speak for several days and then there'll be like a panel of past students and there'll be like some incentive to join the next level and whatever. Like I've seen it done a million times. I did that. I did that. And that actually was that was probably like the climax of me showing up in the online business world in that way. But, you know, I also did like live launches with like expiring bonuses and big red countdown timers and like big promises about like what you're going to achieve and all those things. Like I did all those things and all of those things actually worked for me. They worked for me financially, but they didn't like they didn't work for my students and they did they didn't work for a lot of people. And so I started, you know, I like I've walked I walked it back really slowly. Like at first I just made the decision like, okay, I'm not going to do any more affiliate marketing for a year. I'm just going to put that away so I can focus on delivery of my own programs, because that was one thing. Like one thing about the launch model and for people who are people who are doing courses like, you know, you spend like 10 percent of your time creating a program and then 90 percent of your time marketing it. Like that's basically what I did. And I mean, there's always going to be a bit of an imbalance because, you know, a program needs to be recorded and updated. But, you know, it is it kind of can live on its own. Marketing needs to be fresh and new all the time. So, you know, there. I'm not not suggesting the balance has to be like a certain percentage or whatever, but I did walk back all the marketing I was doing so that I could actually focus more on delivery. And then in the last, and then in the you know subsequent three years, I also started experimenting with using persuasion differently, like each individual tactic. And I understand that a lot of people just want like a manual for like how to use persuasion ethically, I'm never going to create that manual. I don't even like the word ethics because I'll, like who gets to decide what's ethical and what's not. So for me, it's been about like looking at every one of my offers, like what's the price? Okay. How much time do people have to make a decision? How much persuasion am I going to use here? What am I not going to do? Like, you know, I, that's something that I'm negotiating with every single promotion. It's been fascinating to kind of watch you experiment with how you're doing launches now. And I think one thing is that the people who buy these courses are becoming much more aware of these tactics and what's actually going on and are not buying into it like they used to. And I think one thing that a lot of people are experimenting with, you are and I am right now as well, is giving people a longer period of time to decide. So instead of a week, I right now have my like a boss mastermind doors open and they're open for a couple of months to give people 
a real chance mm. to figure out whether they want to join or not. And I know you're doing that with your program as well. You've left the doors open for an extended period of time mm. so that that pressure of make a decision right now and spend a lot of money this second is lifted mm-hmm. from people. But I also know that you've sacrificed a lot of revenue. So we'll go into that in a second. I do want to know what was the moment that you kind of realized this is something that I don't want to be a part of anymore and this is not working? There have been a lot of moments, definitely like seeing. So I mentioned that my best friend, Kathleen, she brought me into the whole Jeff Walker world. And, you know, she went to the events, she bought the $10,000 thing. And, you know, I saw her like I witnessed firsthand everything that was not right about her whole experience. So, you know, I had to reconcile myself to that and figure out why was it different for me and her? What really was the difference? So that experience was really important. I don't think there was a single moment. I've been re-examining persuasion for a while. However, I do remember, like, I think it was January 2020, and I was uh, I was doing a psychedelic journey with two friends of mine. As a side note, like I do use psychedelics and other drugs recreationally and therapeutically. And in this case, <laughs> therapeutically. And I saw, I thought about this promotion, this program I was going to promote. And I just like saw in the moment, like, what was beautiful about it, what was terrible about it, uh, what what was just like gritty and the harm that could be caused by doing this promotion. I just saw it all at once. And something, there was like such a big knowing in me that was like, I cannot do that. I cannot. And that was January or February. And then like I spent the next like six months like trying to talk myself into it and being like no you know it's fine like it, we'll do it this way and then it'll be okay and in the end I looked at it and said I really just I really just can't do this so I wanted to mention that because like I, I think you know we have this three-day rule you have your 24-hour thing like we all have these moments where we see something or understand something, but our programming, like our ways, ways of thinking are like so deeply entrenched. Like, you know, we often have a breakthrough and then just go back to doing things exactly the same way we've always done that. Like I have done that like a million and one times. However, like that moment, it just really stuck with me. And in the end, I couldn't, I couldn't do the thing. I wonder if there are some people listening to this who are not like understanding what is harmful, why it can be harmful. Mm. And I know from my mm. perspective, it took me a while to realize and, and understand this. But having seen people make humongous investments in programs where coaches are all but guaranteeing that they're going to, you know, be super successful and make all this money, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen these people join these programs and then become, I guess, fall into kind of utter despair when they realize that 
what happened for this coach, the amount of money this coach is making is not the amount of money that this person is going to make. These promises were made, but actually they can't really be fulfilled. It works for a few kind of select people, but it doesn't work for the many. And then actually in one particular case, there's one coach that I know of that has, I guess, a policy of then following up kind of missed payments because these are huge investments people cannot possibly keep up. And by the way, when they when they think to themselves, I shouldn't make this investment because I don't have the money, they're told that that is a limiting belief and they should overcome it and mm-hmm. believe in themselves and believe in their futures and invest, you know, everything they possibly can and all this jazz. So they do. And then they can't keep up with the payments. And then, you know, some of these coaches involve, you know, bailiffs and people. I, I know of people who have, who have had bailiffs coming on their door, knocking on the door, trying to take their stuff because this person now owes a coach this money from being, you know, from joining this program. And now, what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is while some people believe that the person who made the decision holds that responsibility for making that decision, what you're saying is that the coach, the person who is selling the thing, the seller of the thing, bears this responsibility of putting so much pressure on people and using these persuasive tactics to influence people to make the decision that they want them to make. That is harmful. They bear that responsibility and that we need to be accountable as people who have people following them, buying from them, we need to be accountable to those people and for our actions. Yes. Thank you, Iman. I sometimes assume that people have certain background. So that was actually really helpful. And we haven't talked about mindset work and limiting beliefs, but that's a really important way that people's, like their own inner knowing is used against them. So thank you for pointing that out. And yeah, exactly like you said, What people, I think, don't realize about persuasion is that it is intentionally designed to shut down critical thinking. Like even if you just look at the concept of a timer, like the idea of a timer is like, if you don't make this decision right now, you're going to lose out on this thing. So you better just make a decision right now. And also you're protected by a guarantee, uh, maybe. So maybe just make the decision right now just in case you miss it because you don't want to miss it. Because actually, like, you know, a lot of people are really successful with this thing. And you like it just like it goes on and on and on. And actually, like the way my best friend Kathleen described it was like the intensity of the promotion created so much tension in her that it was like, I am just going to buy this thing to like break the tension and to like make this problem go away. Wow. Um, which I think like I had never thought about it that way. And, you know, especially for, you know, people who are trauma survivors, which is like almost all of us, you know, it's like when you're being intentionally triggered in that way and there's like possibly it might give me some relief to like hit this buy button. And I don't know if it's a good idea, but let me just try because maybe I will be in less pain if I buy this thing. You just buy the thing. So when I am evaluating what articles, what elements of persuasion I'm going to use, like how much social proof am I going to share and what kind of social proof? How much am I going to use my contacts and my history to show authority? Like, how, I mean, the biggest one is definitely scarcity and urgency. Like, what elements am I going to put in here? And then the combination of all of that together, like, is my customer going to be able to think critically about this decision and make a good decision? 
And, you know, if it's a $27 product, like I don't, I'll use the countdown timer. Like, sure. If there's a reason and it's real, like, or digitally real, sure. I'll use a countdown timer because it's $27 and that's not going to break anyone. But if we're talking about, you know, even a decision that is a few thousand dollars, like arguably most people could recover. However, there are also people who are like desperate and looking for a solution and willing to try anything. And so like, you know, a lot of these programs that talk about like, you know, rescuing you from your sad day job, like a day job where it really like something that I, this is a total aside, but I really don't like how online business like really undermines like the dignity of work like of having a job like whatever that job is like providing for your family like whatever like i i want people to feel positive about having a job however a lot of these programs talk about like your terrible day job and like freeing yourself from from hours for dollars and you know really preying on people that have you know that are in like a hard place in their life like basically they're selling to the most vulnerable people and you know right now like it's december 2022 we are like in the early days of a recession we don't know how long this is going to last we're also like still like in a global pandemic like the whole world is like is still like there's just a lot of shock and grief and i feel like people are so vulnerable right now i have to be extra extra careful about how i use persuasion like persuasion on vulnerable people is always tricky but you know evaluating it in the context of today where we are in the world like it's just it just needs to be treated with even more care like i want to like hold these people like children, like I'm not forcing them into anything. Yeah, I love that. And I think I definitely haven't got this perfect yet because I do launch my own stuff. But it's definitely something I've been working on, something that I am still trying to figure out and figure out what I'm comfortable with, what I'm not comfortable with. I think you had a conversation once about the use of testimonials and, you know, are you sharing testimonials that are reflective of you know a reasonable expectation of success like well what are most people achieving Mm. what is kind of like the average amount of success Mm -hmm. people again as opposed to you know the one superstar who managed to Mm. achieve xyz in your course and i think someone else who does this really well is summer awares who is a fellow email copywriter and when she's launching one of her products she says two things in her emails She says, number one, you can and will be successful without my course. This is not the only way to achieve success Mm -hmm. as an email copywriter, but my course will help speed up kind of your journey, your educational journey, basically. So Mm -hmm. you'll get there in the end with or without me. But if you want help speeding it up, come join me type of thing, which Mm -hmm. I love. And then the second thing she says is do not join this course if you are in debt. I do not want you to join. I will not allow you to join if you make me aware of that's that's that you're in that situation. Please don't join. And so it's interesting to see how this kind of new awareness of this entire situation is cropping up and how people are responding to it. Okay, we've talked about your mistake. 
And we talked about the mistake that made you. Tell me how this mistake made you. How was this the mistake that has helped you to get to where you are today? Yeah, well, you know, like I totally fell for it. And it was easy to fall for because actually it worked for me. Like I was really successful really fast. And so, you know, in some ways, like learning from Jeff Walker and all of his descendants, that actually worked for me. Like my business grew very quickly. I grew an audience. I have lots of students, you know, made millions of dollars. So, um, you know, got to acknowledge that. And also at the pinnacle of it, you know, when I did this large group awareness training, that actually was when I was approached by a student and she had signed up to our $10,000 thing that we had offered. And then she wrote an email after and she said, I would like to tell you my experience of your event as a brown Muslim woman. And I had like never thought about my whiteness. I hadn't thought about how I have other advantages like, you know, charisma, beauty, thinness, all these things. Like I never thought any of that. I never had to. And this person was really articulate. Like she was a, you know, working on her PhD in social justice, like really smart person. And she articulated all of these things in her email and I read them and was like, oh my God, I have a huge problem and this is really important. Like I have to figure this out. So, you know, the, the training that I got, like it got me to the place where someone actually could speak up about what was not right about it. And, you know, that led to this whole exploration, which took time. Like, it's not like I dismantled the whole thing in a day. I had to, you know, like as a white person who didn't know anything, who was like, you know, blissfully ignorant, that doesn't change overnight. Like, I honestly, I I still feel like such a beginner in all anti-oppression work. Like, I feel so green because I, I, I never thought about it until I was like, I don't know, 30 four years old or something. But I'm so grateful to that person. I've spoken about her on many podcast interviews. I've written about her. Like she changed my life. And like I wouldn't have been existing in the world publicly in that way and been called in to that conversation, like if not for Jeff Walker. And not only that, but like that has been like so impactful and continues to impact my life in so many ways. Like Even like understanding persuasion in my business led me to exploring like the coaching industry and everything that is harmful about the coaching industry. And that led me down a path of cult recovery. Like I like I didn't know I didn't know that what I this like my experience as a child was what it was like I've spent my whole life minimizing it. And now just this year, like I opened this like Pandora's box of of like really hard stuff. And that's opened up this whole other world for me and this whole other this whole other like exploration of myself and my responsibility in the world. 
And all of that, like, thanks, Jeff. Like, thanks, bro. So how does your business look different today and your life as well? Because I know this has impacted more than your business. It's impacted your entire life. How yeah. does your business and life look different today? So right now, I'm fortunate right now in that I have, like, I will preach about email marketing all day long. But I have to say, like, my email list and my relationship with my email subscribers, like, has carried me through this whole thing, not only as a place to like read my stories, to read my work, to be on the journey with me, to be saying like, hey, look over here, this is important to you, or like, yes, we're with you, thank you, all those things. So my email list is like the one thing that I have never not done. And I've done it in different ways, of course. But now, like, because I don't have this more scaled business, which costs a lot more, I can make offers to my email list that are not scalable, but that are also still really profitable. And what it means for me in this iteration of my business is I'm not spending nearly as much time like writing emails, working on marketing, webinar invitations, getting the webinar ready, like all of that stuff that was required of me in the previous version is not. Like right now, I'm selling like I'm I'm only selling 20 spots in my program. I haven't sent any promo emails. I've talked to people on Zoom calls, which I never had time to do before. And people people email me a lot. They're like, thank you so much for your time. I know you're like so busy. And I'm like, yo, actually, like I'm not that busy not that busy right now. And that feels really good. Like there'll be other seasons of hustle, but right now is not a season of hustle, especially because, you know, in my personal life, I'm just going through so much. Like I'm still learning like how to be a parent. Like my husband was a stay-at-home dad. So, you know, he took care of the house and food and children and, and, you know, that's that's like my number one thing right now is just really connecting with my sons and being a really awesome mom for the time that I have them. So that's different because that wasn't really a priority before. Like that was taken care of. My husband had that. I didn't have to think about that. So I have to think about a lot of things I didn't think about before. And I'm fortunate, again, like because I have this list of people who have been who've been with me, some of them for a number of years. They do read my work, they show up, and they will purchase things from me when I make offers. Mm-hmm. Earlier on, you were talking about the feeling of, I guess, energetically, just not being capable of, or not having the capacity, no, sorry, not, not mm-hmm. capability, capacity to take on leadership. And I guess like holding space for people like you need to when you're, when you're a coach. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking then as you were talking, it's, I feel like it's, it's also motherhood as well. Because we mm. both have two boys and <laughs> with the kids, you have two humans needing you, touching you, wanting you all the time. And that takes that takes a lot from you, like to the point where sometimes I open my inbox and I'm just like, I I don't have the energy to respond to people that need me right now. I can't do it. Cannot do it. Close my inbox. So I feel like that will have a lot to do with it as well. And I love that you were able to respond to to your needs in the way that you that you needed to. Yeah, I just want to say what 
specifically women are sold, the story that we are sold is a lie. Like that you could have your side hustle business while you're taking care of your children. Like you could do it all because this thing is just your little project on the side that will make all of this money while you take care of your children. Like that, anybody who is listening who doesn't know that yet, like, please hear me. That is not true. Like I get emails from people all the time and they're like, I'm really struggling to make this work. Like, why can't I do, you know, they're like explaining to me all the things that are going on in their business. And then there's like maybe a little sentence at the end that's like, you know, also I'm like a full-time caregiver to my two or three children or whatever, like as if it doesn't matter because they've basically been taught that it doesn't matter, that it's like not important. You could do this thing anyway. And I'm like, let's just back up a freaking second here. That is an unrealistic expectation that a stay-at-home parent should also run a side business and make all this money. Like most people who do that, who say that you can do that, have childcare or had childcare. Like it's really rare that someone is able to actually build something while they're also caring for children. Like, you know, maybe they have some support, like a few hours here and there. Like, if you don't have any support, like it's going to be really hard and do not like beat yourself up or like tell yourself that you failed because you can't make it work. Like you're already sleep deprived. You're already handling everything to add a business on top of that. I just had to jump in because I just feel like it needs to be said like that is not realistic. People who tell you that it is are trying to sell you something and the dream that they are trying to sell you is a lie. It's so important that people hear this. And also, if you haven't listened to the episode with Belinda Weaver, go listen to that. Because mm. me and Belinda spoke for a full hour about this lie, this idea that you can have it all, you can do it all. And it's all just so easy, you know? I've mm. spent this year, so I had my baby last year. He's just turned one, my second son. And I spent the majority of this year at home with him and working as well like growing the business and I don't know why but I had this thing in my head that I want to stay at home with the baby until he's one like I, I don't know where it came from but I was like I think I don't know I told myself this is I'll be okay I can go back to work if I stay at home with him for a year okay and then he'll be he'll be great he'll be happy I'll be a good mom and I had a lot of like mental health moments this last year because it was not easy. And you were talking about sleep deprivation. That's where I'm at right now. As in, I have literally, I think I, I, I text my cousin yesterday, if I'm being totally honest. I text my cousin yesterday and I was like, on the edge of a breakdown. I'm so tired. I'm just, I'm so tired. And it's got to the point where you think you can't be any more tired. Like it's not physically possible. And then you become more tired and you've still got an entire business to run. And I do want to add that I now have childcare for both kids. So both kids have, you know, daycare. And it's still hard because I realize, well, the hours I'm working, I'm working. And the hours that I have my kids, I have the kids. So when do I get a break exactly? This is what I'm trying to figure out. So, I mean, there's just so much and it's so hard. And you're right. I think there's... Uh, 
a lot of dishonesty around how easy or hard it is. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And go listen to the episode with Belinda. Okay, we've got to wrap up in a second. But I want to ask you one last question. What do you want others to learn from your experience? Well, I hope this doesn't come off to like a personal development lecture. But if there's one thing that people take away from my work, like I just want them to be brave. I want people to have like brave conversations with their families, with their email subscribers, like with their customers to be braver. And sometimes what that looks like is engaging in conversations like this that are like complicated and highly nuanced. And there's no like, this is the right way. This is the wrong way. You know, it's, it's a lot like, in online business, we all want to believe that we could just follow someone's step-by-step system. And I think the brave thing to do is to figure it out for yourself and do it in a way that actually makes sense for you and your life and your business and your potential customers. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited that you said yes and that we, I knew this conversation would be amazing. And I think so many people are going to they're going to benefit from it. So thank you. Where can people find you if they want to stay connected? Okay, so if you go to tarzank.com slash join, that is the best place to get on my email list. And that's where, you know, I share stories and talk about business and what I'm doing. And then I also do some storytelling, which is like more purely my writer side. And that's where I write about recovery from cults on Substack and that's tarzank.substack.com and you're writing a book as well so people should look out for that right yeah oh gosh yes <laughs> like look for it on the bookshelf in uh, 2027 you know remember that yes, it I will am. be there I'm looking forward to it looking <laughs> forward to reading it thank you so much Tarzan thank you Iman despite everything Tarzan and I spoke about there's one thing I want to make very clear I don't love this idea of ethical marketing. That's not what we're trying to push here. Because at the end of the day, what is ethical marketing? And who gets to decide what is ethical and what isn't? What Tarzan is encouraging is critical thinking. We should be critical about the persuasive tactics we use to sell our brand, our products and our services. And we should think critically before we allow ourselves to fall for certain persuasive tactics as consumers. Does any of this mean I won't use a countdown timer again? No way. I'll use the countdown timer, but I'll also give you enough time to make a decision that comes from a place of confidence rather than a place of unfounded fear and pressure. And the amount of time you have to decide will be proportional to the investment you're about to make. Being critical of online business practices doesn't mean I'm perfect or Tarzan's perfect. We're just trying to do better. Surely that's better than doing nothing, right? You're listening to Mistakes That Made Me. I'm Iman Ismail. And if you love this episode, take a screenshot, post it on Instagram and tell everyone you know that this is the podcast to listen to. And tag me at Iman Coffee Co so we can say hi and so I can share your post. 
You can find the links to everything I've mentioned today in the show notes. Next time on Mistakes That Made Me. You're looking at the bank balance and you're like, I want this thing. I can't go rob a bank, you know. And then you have someone who will tell you, go and get a loan. That was the position I was put in. But I didn't get that.